going to be getting into some concepts tonight that are, um, that are challenging. There's going to be some philosophical language that maybe you're not familiar with. And um, I, I, so I want to tell you a tension I'm feeling in my own mind. Um, Josh came up and kind of pressed the thickness of my notes. He saw, ooh, that's a lot of stuff. Um, and uh, he had his a way of putting his finger on my problem here. So um, it, I, do have a, I do have a lot to cover. And I, if, um, if I can, I will roll through it. It is a comp, like a, a complete section of teaching or argument that I'm trying to make tonight and explain some things, but I want you, because, because there are some concepts maybe you're not familiar with, I do not want to lose anybody, and that's kind of how I feel through this whole apologetics thing. I want to make sure that I keep you uh, moving along with us. I want you to, if you're not getting something, not to just say, well, everybody else seems to be getting it, I'm just going to keep my hand down. I want you to raise your hand. I want you to tell me if you ha are having a challenge Especially you. <laughs> um, I want you to tell me if you're having a challenge, if you're, if you're uh, struggling with something that I can try to clarify, because it's important. These concepts build on each other. And uh, I, want, I want us all to kind of come along you know, together. And th if that means I need to change the schedule, I will change the schedule. Okay, So let's, let's do this together. Uh, we used to say in the, in the SEAL teams, you're only as fast as your slowest man. And that's, that's because we want to keep all of our men together. So we want to keep everybody here together. We don't want to lose anybody, okay? So with that as a qualification, look at Psalm 36. This is kind of capturing the heart of what we're covering tonight. <clears throat> the Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of man take refuge in the shadow of your wings. <clears throat> they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This, um, again, the psalm points out, once again, just like Lee was mentioning this morning, uh, this antithesis between the righteous and the wicked, the believer, the unbeliever, the unbelieving thinking, the unbelieving thinking, or the believing thinking, the unbelieving thinking. And you see here how this first section, it's transgression that speaks to the wicked. It's, that's what's informing his heart and mind. His, his, um, his path is set by his love of sin. And that affects how he uses the tool called reason. It's how, it's how he directs his life. 
and he flatters himself in his own eyes, namely in this, that he elevates himself to the position of God. I will be like God. I will set my own agenda. I will live my life the way I want to live my life. He flatters himself and thinks, I can do this. I can live any way I want to, and there's no accountability in the end. Um, I was listening to Al Mohler. Uh, I don't know how long ago it was. It's been a while, but um, he was talking about the passing of Hugh Hefner, uh, the founder of Playboy. And that's, you know, Hefner I evidently had a Methodist upbringing. He, he was raised in church, and he uh, rejected all of that upbringing and basically constructed for himself a worldview that said, there is no God, there is no accountability, there is nothing in the afterlife. Live for whatever I can get out of now. That's he. Why did he put that together? Why did he put that worldview together? Because he wanted to live the way he wanted to live. Transgression spoke to him in his heart, and he repudiated everything that he was raised with. This is what, to, to one degree or another, this is what we are dealing with in this issue of apologetics and evangelism. These are the people who need to be saved, these kinds of people. Last time, we, this is several weeks ago, before the conference, before children's ministry training a lot, we learned about the antithesis of the unbelieving mind, uh, set in antithesis with the believing mind. And we also learned and started to get into the nature of the apologetic task. So I'll do a quick review of that, that uh, started with that first point on the antithesis of the unbelieving mind, just to kind of warm you up a little bit. Um, there is a fundamental antithesis between the believing and the unbelieving mind. This is what the scripture teaches us. This is what we see. And thus, the way we reason um, and the way an unbeliever reasons comes from the foundation of either belief on the one hand or unbelief on the other hand. We looked at passages like Romans, 1 Corinthians, and saw the fact of that antithesis and the evidence of how uh, we can all use the same set of facts and reason ourselves to completely different conclusions, right? So you and I, you and an unbeliever will both look at the same sunsets, look at the same babies born, look at the same um, joys in life and difficulties in life, and we come out and say, isn't God glorious? Isn't he powerful? Isn't he wise? Isn't he amazing? And the unbeliever says, huh, how lucky, you know? They just, they shrug their shoulders and move on. It doesn't seem to make a dent. How can that be? Because we come from a foundation of faith, of, of believing in God. They come from a foundation of rejecting, of doubting. So there's a darkness about their reason. And they don't see the same things that they should see. Um, we start with Romans 8, 7. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. And that shows that fundamental antithesis. And then in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, 18, we saw the way that fact, that antithesis, determines the path of our reasoning. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So again, for us who are being saved... The word of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1.30, is wisdom from God. It is righteousness and sanctification and redemption. But to those who are perishing, as Paul says in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So even though the truth about God is 
plainly manifest to all, plainly manifest to an unbeliever. Romans 1, 18 to 20 tells us unbelievers suppress the truth that they clearly and plainly see. They hold it down. Why do they do that? John 3, 19. They love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Transgression, Psalm 36, 1, speaks to them while they're on, on their bed, deep in their hearts. They, they plan trouble while on their bed. They set themselves in a way that's not good because they love their sin. So as long as an unbeliever loves his sin, he's going to remain fixed in that unbelief, entrapped, enslaved to self-trust. He's going to suppress the truth. And that suppression of the truth, you can see every time you talk with an unbeliever about the gospel, you can see it in deflecting, and redirecting the conversation, and shifting things, and detracting, ignoring, deferring, etc., etc. So because his heart is unregenerate, because he has an unregenerate heart, his reason, which is a tool, just like my nose, my eyes, my ears, all tools, my reason is a spiritual tool, um, and his reason is a tool as well, and it's a tool, though, of an unregenerate heart to be used by the unregenerate heart. So he's not going to be convinced because he does not want to be convinced, and indeed he cannot be convinced. So the unbeliever's reason is always going to carry him away from God and not toward God. His reason is always going to serve his rebellion, no matter what evidences you put in front of him, no matter what ar arguments you make. So... It shows, this is, just, this is just the biblical doctrine of man's depravity. I'm trying to bring it to uh, clarity here that there will be no salvation without God, right? God must do his work. So we're in fact set again in antithesis with the unbeliever. And even though we are set in antithesis with the unbeliever, we are faced with this command to Take the gospel to them. We're faced with this command to engage in evangelism and apologetics. We saw last time, and we you know, saw the examples from Scripture, of Christ, of his apostles, of faithful Christians who engage unbelievers, reasoning with them in faithful obedience to God, right? Uh, we tracked Paul during his second missionary journey as he engaged in reasoning with the unbelieving Greek mind. Uh, this is the world of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and um, these philosophers, these are philosophers that shaped the thinking of the West. Um, we're still dealing with the implications of the same kind of thinking that Paul dealt with in its purer forms uh, there on Mars Hill. So we talked about Paul taking the gospel into Macedonia. That's Philippi, Thessalonica, taking it down uh, into Greece and Athens and Corinth and having put the gospel up against the very best philosophical reasoning and minds that the world had at the time, um, having reasoned with the brightest minds in the Hellenistic world, Paul concluded in 1 Corinthians 1.31, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's no boasting in man at all. So Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel, he says in Romans 1. He boasts in the gospel, because like all faithful Christians, Paul recognized that the gospel is the power of God to save, it is, the gospel demonstrates God's wisdom, and the gospel is, is uh, given to mankind by means. We are the means, Romans 10, 14, 15. So we're the means to bring the gospel to unbelievers, and Paul rejoiced in that. So he realizes the gospel is absolutely powerful to do its work. It is, when you understand the gospel and go into its depth, its implications, its breadth, it is pure wisdom 
The more you look at it, the more you see God's mind displayed in the gospel, how he dealt with his, his own demands for justice and his own demands for mercy, how he saved his people and how he condemned those he did not save. Um, they are condemned by their own sins. So see, see all that in the gospel. And so he rejoices in the gospel and he realizes, hey, I need to get out there and bring it to people. I am the means God is going to use. So Christians, we as Christians, we glorify God, we honor Christ, we trust God to save some according to his perfect will, and we rejoice like Paul does to bring the gospel to people. We are God's chosen means to carry the gospel to our friends, neighbors, family, to any unbeliever. So this means explaining the faith, that's evangelism, and it means defending the faith, which is apologetics. Okay, so understanding the fundamental antithesis between believers and unbelievers, we've already been over that ground, practical implications of believing versus unbelieving use of reason. That's what we're going to get into in our second point here, okay? So, second point, this is what we're going to spend time on tonight. Uh, the nature of the apologetic task. The nature of the apologetic task. What are we doing when we're talking about this task of apologetics? We've spent a lot of time over the past number of months talking about what are we doing when we're bringing the gospel to people, right? Law and gospel, trying to help bring, raise awareness of sin to the conscience and help them see they have an issue with a holy God and they're going to die and go to hell if they don't repent and turn to Christ in faith and embrace him, see their sin forgiven. So we understand the evangelistic task. Now we need to understand the apologetic task. What is the nature of it? So tonight, in trying to clarify the nature of the apologetic task, um, I want to want to try to uh, clarify it first, and then illustrate and defend it. Okay, so here we go. You can probably write this down. Maybe a subpoint A, um, clarifying the apologetic task, clarifying it. I like this this um, definition from Cornelius Van Til. He defined apologetics in this way, and I'll I'll repeat this if you'd like to write it down. Apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of the non-Christian philosophy of life. Okay, I'll repeat that. Apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of the non-Christian philosophy of life. Let me point something out there. There are only two philosophies of life described in that definition, right? One is a Christian one, one's a non-Christian one. And yet, he says, there are various forms of the singular non-Christian philosophy of life. And we see every flavor under the sun. It's way beyond Baskin Robbins and 31 flavors. It's like thousands of, of different paths people take. And America is the most confused nation yet. Uh, they're not bound together by anything, really. So we're vindicating the Christian philosophy of life against various forms of the non-Christian philosophy of life. That definition, I think, helps us to think clearly about the nature of the Christian faith in maybe a way you haven't thought about before. Evangelicals have taught for decades that Christianity is, in its essence, simply a way to get to heaven. This is, if you want to know what, it, what Christianity is, it's how to get to heaven when you die. That's, that's kind of what I was raised thinking. Uh, whether people, adults in my life, meant to teach me that or not, I don't know, but that's what I picked up and, uh, you know, checking with all my friends. That's what they, <laughs> that's what they learned too. Um, 
<clears throat> but they didn't teach people to think about Christianity in terms of a philosophy of life, a whole complete approach to life. That's not how they taught Christianity. But Christianity is not just a way to heaven. It's not just a, a Roman's road or a path to get to heaven. It is a worldview. It's an entire way of thinking. It's an entire philosophy of life, a way of life, which is utterly distinct from any worldview of an unbeliever. So here's a question for you. What, is, what do we mean by worldview? What does Van Til mean by describing Christianity as a philosophy of life? What's a philosophy of life? What's a worldview? There are no wrong answers here. Anybody can? No, just, there are wrong answers. I will tell you. Yeah. I'd say your most basic beliefs about reality. Okay, good. Your most, most basic beliefs about reality. Yeah, good. And those beliefs are determinative. Okay, so, so just add that. How we think about the world, how we look at the world. How we think about the world, how we look at the world. Very good. That's, that's an excellent definition. Go back here to Wayne, we'll come back here to Bruce. There was a book um, by a guy by the name of Martin Meadows uh, that I was actually reading uh, this week. And he said uh, that your worldview is really the sum of your convictions. And your convictions are those things that are so fundamental to you that if somebody were to take them away from you, it would change who you are. Okay, that's, that's a prof, uh, prof, kind of a profound way of putting it. Interesting. Um, that one over here, Bruce? I think of uh, survival of the fittest. So that is a worldview, right? That's, that's like an evolutionary worldview. And that, that is trying to explain um, the nature of reality, right? Can you repeat it? I he said he was just describing, using a, uh, rather than kind of describing in abstract terms, he's describing it in a concrete term by saying survival of the fittest. That is a form of the non-Christian worldview. That's one form, survival of the fittest. That's explaining to people reality, the nature of reality. Uh, Joe? The presuppositions we have regarding how we live. Okay, right? presuppositions. Things that we presuppose, things that we assume to be true, and then we live our life based on them. Yeah, Joe? Well, kind of like what Kelly said, a lens or like a filter that you see, everything that you see and take in, you Good. use it through that. Okay, yeah, so that, that, that set of convictions, those beliefs, what you understand, um, yeah, they become a lens or a filter through which you make decisions, through which you judge things, through which you determine that path is not good for me, that path is good for me. Yeah, good. Uh, Oh, I was just going to say the same thing. Okay, same thing. All right, good. Yes. It's a mindset. Mindset. Okay, good. Depending on if you look at it from a biblical perspective or you know, a non-biblical perspective, it's a mindset that governs everything that you do, say, think. Good. Okay, it's a mindset that governs everything you do, say, and think. Good. So it, we're, all, we're all kind of coming around the very same things. I'm going to bring just a little bit of, um, try to, my own version of sharper clarity to it. And it's not just me. Um, they're, they're like Van Til, Bonson, um, getting all this from them. Um, so sharpening the clarification on worldview. And the reason this is important is because um, I, I want you to understand that there is one Christian worldview. I know that there are people who um, are fellow believers 
And they may not, um, they may be de uh, different levels of consistency with what the Bible teaches. And I'm not trying to judge anybody's salvation. I'm just saying that they can be inconsistent in their worldview. But there really is only one Christian worldview. It's what the Bible teaches, what God represents about himself. And that worldview um, is, it means one thing and not another. When God revealed himself, he didn't say, hey, you know, kind of choose. If you want to, you know, Arminianism or Calvinism, whatever you guys want, you know. I just, I put it out there. You guys kind of make the decisions and we'll, we'll see how it works down the road, you know. He, and that's not how he's thinking. He says something and it means this and not that, okay. One Christian worldview. It's up to us to, you know, by his spirit, by his grace, to learn what's correct and what's incorrect, to be more consistent. But there is one Christian worldview in the same way. I know there are many, many forms. He mentioned, uh, Bruce mentioned one, survival of the fittest. There's also, um, you know, uh, get all the gusto. You know, get, you only go around once, get all the pleasure you can. That, that's another worldview, right? Uh, hedonism, you know, is a, is a worldview. That's really what defines American uh, kind of thinking is, is get all the pleasure you can out of life. That's a worldview. But when you look at survival of the fittest or grab all you can, or whatever the worldview, what, however you state it, it's really just one worldview. That's what I want you to understand as we kind of come through this. We're only dealing with one worldview that's right, the Christian worldview, coming from Scripture, and there's only one worldview in many different forms, but it's all the same lie. It's all the same stuff. And if you understand and grasp this, it's going to set the course for every conversation you have. Okay, so this is, you need to understand this is powerful. All right, so we're talking, when we talk about a Christian worldview or a Christian philosophy of life, we're talking about the nature of Christian truth. And think about this. Is the Christian faith one integrated whole, or is it a series of isolated propositions, um, disconnected maxims or proverbial sayings? Does Christianity consist merely in a, in a series of steps that we take along the Romans road? Uh, is Christianity uh, a right set of answers to a set of questions along the pathway to closing that deal and getting your heaven card? Um, if you were described, to put it this way, if you were described Christianity to a lifelong Hindu who just jumped off the plane from New Delhi, or a lifelong Muslim who just arrived from Saudi Arabia, how would you describe the Christian faith to that person? Is it a way to heaven or hell? Um, or a way to heaven and escaping hell? Or is it an all-encompassing philosophy of life? Because that Hindu and that Muslim thinks of religion in terms of an all-encompassing philosophy of life. And your American Christianity that makes things just like, it's a way to heaven, but you live however you want to, that doesn't make any sense. That does not comport with him, for good reason. So let me sharpen the point um, and ask it this way. To become a Christian and to become, uh, or, and to be a Christian, so to become a Christian and to live as a Christian, to be a Christian, must a Muslim or a Hindu abandon his philosophy of life and then exchange it for an entirely antithetical philosophy of life? Or can he simply add Christ to his Hinduism or his Islam? No, it's the first, right? We might then ask if they are required to abandon and exchange, shouldn't we Americans be doing the same? Yes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And if so, how does that look? Put off, put on. 
Well, but we have to identify what is the nature of our American inherited religion. And that's not something that we as Americans living here, breathing the air, swimming in this water, this cultural, these cultural waters, it's not something we can identify very quickly. When you travel to another country, you're like, whoa, this place is foreign. This is kind of weird. Look at how they do that. Look at how they dress. Look at how they, what they eat. If they come here, but spend 20, 30 years over there, and you get accustomed to it, and then you come back to America. Like many missionary kids come back to America and suffer from culture shock. Because they're like, what is this? And then they can see our culture in ways that we can't see our culture. So in the same way that a Muslim or a Hindu has to jettison their philosophy of life and embrace an entirely new philosophy of life, and they do think of it as a philosophy of life, not a bunch of isolated propositions, but an entire way of thinking. That's the way we Americans seem to think as well. Same thing. So Christianity is a philosophy of life. That's how Jesus thought of it. That's how Paul thought of it too, and all the apostles. So as a philosophy of life, it is a comprehensive worldview, which means Christianity is an integrated system of truth. So Christianity is not a series of disjointed parts. It cannot be embraced in a piecemeal way. That is, accepting the fragment that I like about getting to heaven while rejecting the part about obedience to Christ and his lordship. That's utterly unbiblical. Christian, since Christianity, then, is a worldview, as Van Til put it, Christian theism must be thought of as a unit. Um, it must be, Christian theism must be explained as a unit. Christian theism must be defended as a unit. So when we defend Christian theism, we defend it as a unit. All the parts are related to one another, not as truth in isolation from the whole. Okay? Now, at this point, does that make sense to you? Yes. Any questions about that? This is really crucial to understand. Okay. Especially because we're all emerging from that culture, those cultural waters we've been swimming in, um, that they really did pass on to us a kind of Christianity that was fractured, <laughs> disconnected, disjointed version of Christianity, and really didn't teach us a philosophy of life. In fact, that's something that I, Rue, uh, my wife Melinda, and I, we kind of look back in our early life as Christians and say, boy, we wish we had better discipleship. We wish we had. People who are older and wiser in the faith and mature come alongside us and say, no, don't live like that. What are you doing? You know, and, and help us get on the right track. We didn't really have that. So we kind of fumbled through a lot on our own and stubbed our toes and scraped, and fell down, bruised. Um, and I think that we need to think about that when we would disciple our younger people. We need to think about it as an entire Christian worldview, philosophy of life. So, what are the parts of our worldview? What are the parts of any worldview? And what are the parts of a Christian worldview? You want to write these words down. These are going to come up later in the coming weeks. But three terms, okay? Three terms. Metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Meta, physics. So physics with a meta on the front of it. <clears throat> epistemology is epi, stem, ology. Epistemology and ethics. E T H I C S. Break that down. 
Okay, so first, every worldview has a view of metaphysics. What is metaphysics? Uh, origins. Yeah, okay, so origins is, is involved in metaphysics. It's a fancy way of, uh, of the study of what is. Okay? It's the study of what exists. It's the nature of the universe. So a good Webster's definition of metaphysics, it is the branch of philosophy that treats of first principles. It includes ontology. Ontology is a fancy word for being. And then what Gary said, cosmology. Cosmology, the creation, created order. And is intimately connected with epistemology. Now, the definition used a few other terms uh, which can be intimidating, they really aren't. Ontology, cosmology, epistemology. Ontology is the study of being, the study of existence, which for the non-Christian, existence starts and ends with anthropology. There is no God in the unbeliever's worldview. Or if, even if they claim to believe in a God, it's not the Christian God of the Bible. And so what is it? If it's not the Christian God of the Bible, what is it? It's an idol. It's a false God. So they might, basically, the Bible's term for that kind of a person is, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's, it's, it's God of the Bible is not, is what that verse is saying. So they're basically atheistic at their core. So the non-Christian ontology, the study of being, starts and ends with man, anthropology. But for the Christian, our ontology, our understanding of being and existence, it starts with God. So we start with theology. We're God-centered in our thinking. And then this extends to mankind because our being is found in God's being. We're not first. He's first. We're not primary. He's primary. He's self-sufficient. We're completely dependent, right? So, uh, Christian starts with God. Theology extends to mankind, which is anthropology of angels as well. So angelology, demonology, all wrapped up in this as well. Then cosmology, as Gary mentioned, the cosmos, the study of the origin, nature, the structure of the universe. That all comes out of this issue of metaphysics. You can immediately see uh, the consequences here at the foundational level of metaphysics between the Christian and the non-Christian worldview. The non-Christian ontology starts and ends with man, and that's in antithesis with the Christian ontology that starts with God and ends with God. Ends with God. So clearly, what we think about metaphysics, the nature of existence, uh, the nature of God's being, our being, cosmology, that is the foundation for all other thinking. So in a worldview, metaphysics, that is the foundation. And your epistemology and your ethics come out of your ethics, or, or your metaphysics. Next part of the worldview, which we operate from and we defend in apologetics is a Christian epistemology. Epistemology is, um, it is intimately connected with, um, with our metaphysics, but Epistemology, our worldview has a view of epistemology. Epistemology is a fancy, just a fancy word for the study of how we know what we know, um, how we gain knowledge, how we understand things, what's the process of knowing and learning. Um, so again, Webster helps us with uh, epistemology being a branch of philosophy that investigates the origin, nature, methods, and limits of human knowledge. So how do we know what we know? Uh, do we know what we know by reason? Or do we know what we know by experience? 
Are we rationalists? Everything is known by reason and principles of reason. Um, are we Platonists? You know, they say that everything here is just kind of an illusion. Really, what's the real reality is not what's here as an illusion, but forms in heaven where the perfect ideal is. And everything else here is just a, an imperfect copy. There's chairs here, but that's not really a chair. Yeah, make no mistake. Nah, you, you make use of it and everything, but that's not a chair. Real chairness. Every quality and attribute of chairness, all the accidents of a chair, its back, its, its support, its legs, its foundation, is in heaven. So that's how the rationalists or the, the Platonists used to think about reality, that everything is contained in, in heaven. Um, empiricists, empiricists say, nah, it's not rationality, it's everything is atoms. That goes way, way back. Everything is atoms. Everything is just material things. Matter is all that is. Matter is eternal. So materialists, uh, empiricists, have a hard time explaining emotions like love, feelings. They have a hard time explaining. I mean, because really, our love and attraction toward our spouse or one another or our children, all that is is a firing off of different atoms. You know, I, really, I'm not drawn to my child and care. All it is is just the firing off of little dopamine, you know, neurotransmitters going off. I kind of feel pleasure when I come near, and they do to me, and we kind of reciprocate that. We're kind of just a bunch of snorting, sniffing animals going through life, um, you know, for mutual advantage. Is that really what explains reality? <laughs> so... He's like, oh, I ain't got how you've been treating me all night. <laughs> um, so, so this issue of epistemology, how do we know what we know? Is it, is it rationalism? Is it empiricism? Is it, uh, are we just complete materialists? And that's, that's back to the nature of reality. What is, what is, uh, what is reality? Um, it's all very, very much connected and intertwined. So do we know by, by experience? Uh, do we know by subjective intuition or by revelation shot down to us from heaven from a divine being? It we inserted with a little light, you know, it goes on in our head. What is the source of knowledge and wisdom? Third thing, every worldview has a view of ethics. That is how we should behave in light of our metaphysics and our epistemology. So, must we always tell the truth? Or are there times it's okay to lie? Must we always help the weak? Uh, or is it okay at times to take advantage of the weak for a greater good? These are all issues of ethics. So the apologetic task then is to defend that Christian worldview. Christian metaphysics, which starts and ends with the triune God. Christian epistemology, that is all knowledge is grounded in the self-attesting authority of God's revelation and Christian ethics, which starts and ends with the standard of God's holy law. We, in apologetics, are to vindicate that comprehensive worldview against the non-Christian worldview. All the parts connected with all the other parts being inextricably linked to the whole. It's all one. It's all a piece. Okay? So as we explain and defend the faith, we're dealing, as you can see, is it hot in here or is it just me? It's hot in here. Is there anybody that can save us from, from, from So, um, thank you, Wes. To the rescue again, my friend. Um, so as we explain and defend the faith, we're dealing with ultimate issues, we're raising and answering ultimate questions, 
There's only, there's one and only one way the cosmos came into existence. There's one and only one source of all being. Uh, we see that he is the personal, all-sufficient, self-sufficient creator God. The clearer that we are about the Christian worldview, we are going to, of necess necessity, come into conflict with the non-Christian worldview, right? So, now, we're talking about ultimate issues, ultimate questions. The people you're interacting with, family members, friends, neighbor over the fence, I mean, any idea what you're talking about if you start talking about Christian metaphysics? No. <laughs> we're, we're just catching up with the terms, okay? So we got to be realistic about this, that most people that you run and come into contact with, they do not understand their own metaphysics, their own epistemology, their own ethics. They don't understand the basis of that. They don't understand how everything is connected. But I can tell you this, they have a worldview. They have a metaphysics, a view on metaphysics, of origins, of ontology. They have a view of cosmos, of starting points and ending points. They have an understanding of what's wrong with the world, how it got this way, what to do, what's to do about it. They have an understanding of where they get knowledge from and how to think things through. They have an understanding of ethics, what they should and should not do. Now, is it consistent? No, it's terribly inconsistent. But everybody has a worldview. Our task in apologetics then is to go in and be like Socrates, irritate them, <laughs> you know, and, and raise those things, raise those things that are deeply hidden inside of them, raise them to the surface. Why? It's for their own good. <laughs> it's for their own good. Barrett. When you say understanding, do you mean opinion, their opinion of it? They have opinions. They have, yeah, they, they, they're filled with opinions. And many people like to, today to say, oh, that's my opinion, but that's well, not. Yeah, they, people I meet, they seem to understand what they're talking about. I mean, that's their opinion of it. Sure. Okay. So, so they're, they're going to use the word opinion because it's a less offensive term than conviction. Okay. But you see how they live. Well, it's my opinion that, um, you know, maybe, you know, taking cocaine eight times a day is a bad thing for my health. <clears throat> but when they live according to that opinion, um, it's, it's really a conviction that they have. They're just calling it by a different word. It's a belief that they have, that that's a bad thing. It, you know, is, um, is stealing, you ask your, your unbelieving friend, is stealing wrong? Is it wrong? Is it morally evil to steal and to take what doesn't belong to you? And if, if they're honest, they'll say, yeah, it's morally evil. You shouldn't do that. You press further and say, well, where do you get that standard? Well, that's why they don't want to talk about that. Oh, well, you know, everything's relative. Um, there is no absolute truth. So now they're, now they're, right, it is. But now they're caught. They're caught in a, in a tension, what we call a dialectical tension between they're saying there is, uh, there are no moral absolutes, but then they're saying stealing is wrong. And when you press them on that, they may even backpedal or they may even lead out by saying, nah, stealing in and of itself, we can't call anything evil or good or there isn't really any moral absolute. It's just my opinion that that's a bad thing. Really, just your opinion. So if I come into your house and clean out all your stuff, it's just your opinion that, that, that I've done you know, something that's disadvantageous to you. Is that what you're saying? Can I test that now? <laughs> Nobody lives as if it is an opinion. They're lying to you, okay? The unbeliever is tricky, and, and especially these days. Nobody wants to stand uh, up for what they believe in. 
They want to speak in terms of opinion. I'm agnostic. Oh, I, I refuse to make a judgment. But in not making a judgment, they are making a judgment. They're just choosing where they want to set their fences and set their boundaries. And that's what we're going to be doing in this task of apologetics is revealing that. Bringing that kind of thing to, a surface, to the surface. We're going to learn to be good listeners to people and ask them questions about what they really mean by that. And we're going to find, you find very quickly that a conversation about music, about politics, about sports, about anything, now becomes an issue of ultimate truth. Okay? Um, I, I can't remember what article I saw, but it was an article about football. Well, you know, take away the whole kneeling or not kneeling thing. Uh, that's too easy. But, but let's go to uh, an article I saw where they were saying that, I don't know, somebody cheated. You know, there was like a fumble that they didn't, they let go. I don't know what it was. So that turned, you know, you're talking with your neighbor about the fumble that happened in the game and whether that was, whether that was right or wrong. And they're going to say, that's wrong. That's wrong that the refs didn't catch that, that they let that go. It, this whole sport thing is fixed. You know, they're, they're just trying to make money and it's all about gambling in Vegas and, you know, on and on it goes, right? You start to pull the threads of that little thing. Really? You just think it's wrong? So is it my understanding, and based on what you said, that it is right to follow the rules in football, it's wrong to break the rules in football? Mm, yeah. So <laughs> let me understand. Is, are you saying that there is a, an absolute standard of right and wrong in the universe that's transcendent, universal, that we all are subject to? Well, no, no, I'm not saying that. <laughs> Um, okay, well, so let me understand this further. Um, you're saying there is no absolute standard, and yet cheating on a football field is wrong. But what if cheating on a football field is to my greatest advantage, to my greatest joy? Because not only do I get to set the course of the game, but if I invest the right amount of money with the right bookies, I make out big. Is that okay? So you're pressing them and you're starting to make them feel awkward and uncomfortable. And it's just so much fun to see <laughs> this, oh, yeah. you know, see this kind of come across their face like, oh no, <laughs> you know, how can I get out of this? But if you're, you, know, you do this slowly and over time, you start to see that they really don't have a reason for the rejection of the Christian worldview, okay? So I've gotten way ahead of myself and Burn some time, but that's a good question. And I, does that make sense? Yeah. The whole opinion thing. Any other questions? Okay. Okay. So, um, where am I? Travis. Yeah. Uh, you said that our task in apologetics then is to raise this to the surface the realities and the inconsistencies of the worldview. Is that we phrase that? Yeah. Um, yeah. I I I stand by that. Um, but I'll add to that. So we're going to we're, we're clarifying the task of apologetics, and really, if I get to the bottom line, task in apologetics is to obliterate their worldview. Okay. Okay. So annihilate it. So in order to do that, though, they need to realize what their worldview is. Yeah. We're going to help them. We're going to teach them what their metaphysics are, what their epistemology is, what their ethics are. We're going to show how they're in tension with one another, and they don't want to really follow one from another. We're going to show how that really just unravels. Okay. And we and we want to do that. We want them to to be the unbeliever in front of us. We want them to go ahead and chase down the, the implications of their thinking. We want them to take it out and go ahead and just, just zzz, let that line, let that fishing line go. Just zzz, 
and you let the line go, 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 and then it's like, snag! And you pull right back into the boat, okay? That's what we're gonna do. All right, so, the clearer we are about the Christian worldview, this is going to bring us into conflict or tension with the non-Christian worldview, their metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, and, and while vindicating the Christian worldview, we're at the same time gonna utterly dismantle and totally annihilate the non-Christian worldview. And that is why Christian truth is rightly perceived as threatening to the unbelieving world. We are disturbing their peace. Mm -hmm. And look, we don't do this because we take some kind of, you know, perverse pleasure in disturbing people's peace. But disturbing their peace is the way to upset the, their confidence that they have, that they have no accountability uh, at the end. We want them to understand. They are accountable. We want them to understand there is sin. There is something wrong in their thinking. There's something wrong in their heart. We want them to understand their serious situation and come to Christ, okay? We can't do that by keeping them comfortable. We must disturb their peace, all right? So um, coming back to just a little bit of a flow here, we're not offering Christianity here uh, as one of many valid worldviews to believe. Okay, I think you understand that. It is the only worldview that is valid, and it is one that must be obeyed. We're insistent about that fact. Why? Because we're so proud of what we've learned, and we just convinced it's the right way? No. Because our Lord is telling us we must say thus. We must speak thusly and not that way. We must speak rightly about, his world, about the worldview that he's revealed to us. So Van Til says, quote, the argument for the existence of God and the truth of Christianity is objectively valid. We should not tone down the validity of this argument to the probability level. Christianity is not the only, the only, um, or I should strike that. Christianity is the only reasonable position to hold and therefore the only proof of the Christian position is that unless its truth is presupposed, there is no possibility of proving anything at all, end quote. Okay, that's what we've been trying to say. If you remember back to some of the weeks, we are not talking about Christianity as, as, as a possibility, one possibility among a number of possibilities. We're not talking about it as really the most probable of all worldviews. We're talking about it as the only worldview, and we're insistent upon that. And in fact, we're so certain of that, um, and we're so clear about that point, that the proof of the Christian position is that unless it's truth is presupposed, there is no possibility of proving anything at all, okay? Greg Bonson put it this way. He said, reject the Christian faith, and you will not be able to reason at all. That is what we see in the world. A lot of people who are not reasoning at all. Those who reject the truth are going to continue to engage in reasoning because it's an unavoidable exercise of human behavior, but they're going to have no intellectual foundation for their reasoning. Their reasoning will become absurd. Um, they're going to end up, you know, using rational argument really in support of irrationality. They're going to use their reason, their mind, and their explanations, their arguments to defend total irrationality. I was uh, talking to one of my sons who's in a class and he was talking to a professor who was trying to dismantle his faith and my son kept pressing back and basically the professor said, well, I don't really take any position at all. 
I don't take any position at all. I just ask questions. So it's kind of like the superior Socratic approach. And yet Socrates had a view of the world, but this guy says, I'm above all that. And I really don't believe in anything can be rationally proven at all. So he's, he's admitting his irrationality. He's using his reason to argue for irrationality. He's just completely undermining any proof, any reason. And so basically, at the end of the day, you want to say, you know, he's, he's in college. Well, why, why, why am I paying? Why are they paying you? <laughs> when you have no position, you have nothing to teach, you have nothing to say, you have no, no rationality. So to put it another way, by rejecting the Christian worldview, the unbeliever has to use his reason to justify his non-Christian worldview, which is at its foundation, at its base, in its essence, it's irrational. And that's because apart from Christianity, it's impossible to prove anything. Unbelievers attempt to argue rationally to defend an irrational worldview. That's futility, total futility, chasing after the wind. We've uh, mentioned before that the nature of our argument uh, here is called the transcendental argument for God's existence. And this argues from the impossibility of the contrary, as we've been saying. So we demonstrate that the preconditions of intelligibility, that's just a long, fancy way of saying what must be true if we're to have any rational explanation of anything? Preconditions of intelligibility. Preconditions of intelligibility are founded in and only in the Christian worldview or in the being of God. So we're arguing about that which is the very foundation for making any argument at all. Christianity must be true, otherwise there is no foundation for making any argument at all. <clears throat> So any and every non-Christian worldview, whether it's a secular non-Christian worldview, religious non-Christian worldview, it's all the same thing. All that is in the crosshairs of this transcendental argument. We're going after it. So we, we're going to perform an internal critique of their worldview. We're going to show them on the basis of that worldview that they can't know anything at all. No other worldview is going to provide the preconditions for intelligibility except the Christian worldview. I realize I'm repeating myself and saying the same thing in multiple ways, and that's by design. <laughs> I'm not just getting lost in my notes. Okay? <laughs> so having clarified the apologetic task, we're vindicating the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of the non-Christian philosophy of life. Let's just illustrate it just real quick. Second sub-point, you can write, illustrating the apologetic task. Have you ever heard someone, a non-Christian, say to you, sometimes even a Christian, sadly, but be clear, it's a non-Christian, and they say, we all need to realize that it is possible that there is no God. Ever heard anybody say that? Or maybe they state that in the form of a challenge, you're in kind of a little debate with them, or... Uh, talking with them. You Christians are arrogant to think that your view of God is the only right view. You need to be willing to allow for the possibility of other views or even the possibility that God doesn't exist at all. Are you humble enough, if we're going to have this conversation right now, are you humble enough to at least admit that, that there is a possibility that God doesn't exist? How would you respond to that? No, You'd say no, and why? Because we just left this class. <laughs> no, I just left the class. Said I can't do that. I have heard that during during apologetics arguments uh, way back when that, um, that that kind of at the giving up stage they would say, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. There may there may be no God. But if I'm wrong, what's the consequence? Right. Versus if you're wrong, what's the consequence? Right, right. It's that uh, Pascal's wager, right? So if, if, if I'm wrong and, and your worldview is right, 
you know, I live a, a, a joyful life teaching good morals to my kids and I die and there's nothing there. I'm worm dirt, right? But if you're wrong and I'm right, then you go and burn in hell forever, okay? That's true, but I do not want to say that to people. It's not persuasive. It's like, well, then it's just basically a shrug of the shoulders. I'll, I'll take my chances with my form of reality. I'll see my friends. I'll see my friends in hell. You know, I can see. First cause doesn't allow us to take that position, right? Every everything came from something, whatever that first cause is, right? And, and that sets up a presuppositional basis to talk about the creation of Genesis. Yeah, and so first cause, and the and the unbeliever looks at you and says, "Okay, great, first cause. I'll go with you in that argument." But um, you need to recognize that first cause could be a whole legion of conspiratorial fuzzy pink bunny rabbits. Right? Everyone put, they're the first cause. First cause will lead you to deism, but on that deism, right, ultimately you have a choice. You have a choice of the available belief systems, and only one is supported by the facts of all of creation. Okay. Yeah. So it is hard to imagine a conspiracy of uh, a thousand bunny rabbits putting this all together. But clever little things, right? The minute you give up God, they won't argue. What's that? The minute you give up God, that there is any possibility, you've you've lost the argument. Yes. So I and I would say the minute you give up the Christian theistic view of God, you have lost the argument. You have just given the whole thing over to your opponent. Might as well be a bunch of fuzzy bunny rabbits or nothing at all or atoms or, you know, thoughts. Did you say that some Christians say that? About the fuzzy bunny rabbits? <laughs> no, no. What, what, no, what Christians, what Christians will say, they'll get into a conversation with somebody and say, look, I'm, you know, I realize that there are many different views and stuff, and I, I just want to give you I, what I think is the most reasonable view, the greatest potential possibility that answers all the questions. So what they're saying when they do that, you know, that the most probable view is that God is. And, and, you know, it's, it's a, there is a theism. And in fact, it's, very, it's even more likely that it's monotheism. And it's even more possible and likely that, so they're talking in terms of possibility and probability. They're saying it's possible for this, it's prob- probable for that. And what I'm saying is no, we cannot say that. So even Christians will make that mistake. I've made that mistake in talking to people. I kind of want to keep a, a rapport with the unbeliever, keep him kind of talking to me. And I realize if I, if I come on too strong, oh, I'm going to lose him, you know. So I can't do that. You know, it's kind of like this intellectual game we play. If I can just kind of walk him over here and then walk him over here and then walk him a little closer. Yeah, Christians will say that. Yeah, Leah? I think it's actually pride. Um, the height of pride for us, especially as believers, not to acknowledge um, that there is a God and not to start from that premise because we're exalting human reason above what God says in his word. Okay. So it was just interesting. You started the question um, with mentioning that they, they come to you like, hey, are you humble enough to say that you can be wrong? Well, no, it's not a matter of if it's more proud to give up what we believe. Okay, so here's... It's almost like she's my daughter or something. Listen listen to what I wrote in my notes. How would you respond? Here's what I wrote in. And here's the question. Are you humble enough to allow for that possibility? I've been humbled by the grace of God to accept that I'm a creature in his world 
and cannot make sense of anything unless I presuppose his being. It's not pride, or it's, it's, it's pride, not humility, that says otherwise. Now, are you humble enough to submit to the reality of God? <laughs> That's what we're saying to people. So your answer is rhetorical because it turns upon his question. Mm -hmm. So, again, we're exposing here, in that kind of exchange with an unbeliever, we're exposing this antithesis that exists between the believer and the unbeliever, and it's on the reality of God and this whole realm of possibility. Okay? Two separate things. This is how the unbeliever thinks. Cornelius Van Til says, for the theist, now when he's talking about theist, he's talking about us. Christian theists, not just, you know, Hindu theism. For the theist, possibility has its source in God. While for the anti-theist, God has his source in possibility. Do you see that distinction? Yeah. I'll say that again. Cornelius Van Til says, for the theist, possibility has its source in God. But for the anti-theist, God has his source in possibility. That's a very important clarification. A very important dividing line between the believer and the unbeliever, the non-Christian and the Christian. We are going to argue from the impossibility of the contrary that God does in fact exist and in fact it's impossible for him not to exist. But consider the non-Christian's assertion here that we need to entertain the possibility there is no God. What does that tell you about the unbeliever's thinking? What can you discern about the way he thinks? The backdrop for the unbeliever's thinking is this wide realm of unrestrained, unmitigated, unbridled possibility. Okay? Think science fiction. Think Star Trek. Proliferating races and planets and all kinds of stuff, right? In that unbounded possibility, for them, God is just one of many possibilities. This universe and how he created it is just one of many ways he could have done it. That's science fiction. It's called fiction for a reason. It's fantasy. It's not reality. God is not one of many possibilities. As the only self-sufficient being, he is the source of all being. He is the source of all becoming. And therefore, even the concept of possibility is not possible without the fundamental certainty of God. In order for possibility to exist, there has to be a foundation of certainty to build from. Okay? There has to be a certainty as a foundation, otherwise possibility fails to materialize, potentiality fails to become reality, and all the rest. So. We need to understand that as Christians, we think very differently than non-Christians. Christians, we think possibility based in God, not God based in possibility. Possibility is only possible because God is absolute certainty. He is pure being. Does this make sense? This does not make sense for anybody. Trisha, is that a puzzled look on your face? Or? I am sorted through, but I don't know how to ask I'm so sorry I've left you in that condition. Please <laughs> <laughs> repeat the statement you just made. Yeah, the one statement, your answer. Van Tills. Oh, no, your answer to the person your, when your you say. Your answer to the person. Oh, you want me to go back to that? No, the that's the yeah. last thing. I think 
Do you want me to go back to what I told the... Okay. The problem, Travis, that I think we're having is that we agree with what you're saying as much as we're understanding it, but Joe Sixpack isn't going to listen to that argument. No, this isn't an argument for Joe Sixpack. Okay. This is an argument for you as a Christian, so you can help Joe Sixpack understand his metaphysics, his epistemology, and his and realize that he, Joe Sixpack, he's Joe Sixpack because he thinks that the world is just filled with a bunch of possibilities that are out there. Right. God is one of them, but he chooses to live his life according to another possibility. So we don't come to him with, a, with God being one among many possibilities in his mind. Right. We come to him as God as the ultimate uh, source of all being, the foundation of everything that is possible. God defines possibility. Joe Sixpack doesn't define possibility. Okay? Yeah. I got that. <laughs> it's okay, guys. We, we, we'll take the rest of the hour for... Rest of the several hours we have together. <laughs> I like whoever adjusted your clock this morning. I thought that was very kind. Twenty to nine. He's second quarter. All right. Um, yeah. So there are two scriptures in the Bible that really uh, it confounds me. But even as I think about my testimony, unless God opens my eyes, I would never, never have on my own understood scriptures. In the Bible, it says, one scripture says, the Lord opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Yes. Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to understand. So basically, we're not going to win somebody by arguing, but, I mean, because it's really, eventually, God opened my eyes. God opened your eyes. God opened our eyes. Right. Is that a biblical thing to say? Because by arguing, no matter how you know, intelligently you argue with somebody, unless God touches him, yeah. her, I would have been blind still, even if somebody presented you know, this way to me. Okay, so let me, I mean, I'm hearing some things that you're saying that are leading me to believe that I have miscommunicated something. And, and uh, what I want you to understand, first of all, is what we're doing here this is for us. We're, we're back in the locker room. We're going through plays together. We're talking about, gentlemen, this is a football, and um, here's the line of scrimmage. We all line up here. You line up there. We wear these numbers because, you know, that's receivers and these are linemen. Okay, we're talking. That's us right now. I'm not giving you things that you can run out right now and go and explain to an unbeliever, to Joe Sixpack. Okay? So first of all, that. Second of all, when I use the term argument, I'm not saying bickering. I'm not talking about getting into a fight with an unbeliever, uh, a verbal fight. But I'm using the term argument, I'm using it in a philosophical way of presenting a case. Just like Paul did. Just like Paul did, reasoning in the marketplace, yeah, <coughs> reasoning in the synagogues. So I'm using the term argument in a, in a specific way to speak of argumentation. Whenever we're explaining the gospel, we're making an argument for God, okay? That doesn't say we're getting into a bickering match, okay? Third thing you said, um, so what you said, whether we're doing the way of the master, whether we're sharing the gospel, uh, using the Romans road, whatever we're doing, that person will never come to Christ unless God opens their eyes. That person will never come to Christ without regeneration, without being born again and having their eyes open, and then they put faith in Christ. And yet, the way that happens, 
The means that that typically happens by is us. He uses us to go in and make the argument. He uses us to go and bring the gospel to people. He uses us to go and reason with the unbeliever. And so we're learning uh, in order to do that reasoning well, so that we're consistent with our worldview, so that we're accurate and precise and we're representing God well, we're trying to understand our own thinking, we're trying to understand their thinking. So we're trying to clarify that. And so I'm coming at this in different ways to say, here's, here's the way the unbeliever thinks, and here's how we think. Okay? Absolutely. So here's their team, here's our team. They're wearing red, we're wearing blue, you know? So that's, that's what I'm trying to describe. Um, let me get to Bruce first. Again, getting back, you made a statement, the possibilities based on God or something like that. You, yeah, I, so... Please repeat that. Sure. So Cornelius, this is Cornelius Van Til, this is his quote. For the theist, that's us, for Christian theists, possibility has its source in God. While for the anti-theist, the atheist? God has its source. God has his source in possibility. Okay? Yes, uh, Becky? So, I, so um, the understanding, the clarifying what they're thinking and clarifying um, what they're thinking. And then you clarify what you're thinking. What if it's a Catholic person that really believes in God? Yeah, good question. So, um, a Catholic person, if they don't, if they if they don't believe the gospel, it, which if they follow the traditional teaching of the Catholic Church, they don't believe the gospel. So, whatever God that they say they believe in is not the Christian God. And whatever version of reality that they have, their worldview, their metaphysics, their epistemology, their ethics. It's not biblical. So they are in that category of the non-Christian worldview. Even though they say, yeah, I believe in the same God you do. Don't take their word for it. Do an internal critique of what they've actually, actually say they believe. And you'll reveal that they don't know. They don't know it. Okay? And we're going to have to get to that down the road because there's all kinds of questions about, well, what about Mormons? Or what about Jehovah's Witnesses? Or what about Catholics? Or what about... And on and on, fill in the blank. It's all the same, it's all the same system. That's what I'm trying to say. It's all the same system. And we need to get down to, gentlemen, this is a football first, to see that, and then we'll build up from there and see, oh, that's just a different color of football. That's a pink football, that's a blue football, and that's a black football. Just a Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholic, Catholicism, Islam, it's all the same thing. Still fundamentally, it's the same. I just I wanted to try to clarify that quote, if if I'm see if I'm understanding it right. So he's saying when he says for the theist, possibility has its source in God, and for the non-theist, God has a source in possibility. He's saying he's just clarifying the starting point for the Christian and the non-Christian, right? He's saying for for the Christian worldview. God is the start of everything, and anything that's possible is possible because God created it. And for the unbeliever, he rejects God, and so everything is just a wide world of possibility that he picks and chooses from to cobble together his worldview. You got it. Okay. You got it. Good. So impossibility is just a bunch of vague, floating things out there. 
that he tries to, and we'll get to that. So you're anticipating where I'm going, but I'm, I need to. I've noticed, um, I mean, it's great that I assume Jesse has a professor that um, is so firm on his unbelief, but in in the PC world that I live in, where everybody has to be very like, no curse words, no offense, no religion, no politics, all of that, it's more um, people people's worldview is based on consequences. Like, if I steal and I get caught, I get in trouble. Yeah. But if I steal and I don't get caught, who cares? It's, right. it's more wishy-washy, and it seems to like change depending on the day, and you're talking to them on a Monday versus a Friday. Yeah. It's, how, do you, how do you really combat that when they can't figure out what their worldview is? Yes, good. So again, Travis, we'll, can you kind of, oh. well, well, so we're going to come back to that after. I'm sorry to put you through the suffering, folks, the torment, and <laughs> but but I'm trying to explain some foundational things that we will come to later on. How to then actually do this? But first, we need to understand clarifying. Okay, the nature of that that person's thinking. That person you work with, which is who is very PC, wants to. To fit in, not get in trouble. Why do they do that? Why do they do what they do? That's their ethics. Their ethics is basically it's um, it's relative, right? Based on their environment, based on what I can get get away with. If I can get away with stealing that and taking all that money for myself and no one will see me, then I'll do it. But if there's a law enforcement officer around, then I'm not going to do it. Okay? So they're living under a certain. Why do they do that? Because they have a certain view of reality. What is it about their ethical system that allows them to steal things that are not, take things that are not theirs? It's because they believe that there's no future accountability. So now we're coming back to metaphysical issues. What they believe or don't believe about God. So in your office environment, you say, hey, I noticed that, um, you know, as we've talked, you've, you've mentioned that you, you know, if, if they were looking, you would take this cash for yourself or whatever it is. What is it that makes you think that, you know, keeps you in line only when they're around, but when they're not around, you feel like, do you, do you believe that there is no absolute right and wrong, that God's not going to see that and hold you accountable? Now you're into a whole conversation about ultimate issues. So then the conversation takes a different turn. And you get beyond that superficial, surface-level um, <coughs> politeness that says, let's just all keep everything you know, copacetic and here on the surface. You, 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 you do, you, you transgress that boundary, you get into a deeper question. And you'll find, I find, people really do want to talk about this. It intrigues them. Why? Because they're created in God's image. Because they want to talk about that. Because they can't help it. They think about it. Okay? But we'll come back to how we're going to go through this in a method uh, later on. Any other questions? Who, who's completely lost? Completely lost. Rebecca, you've got your hand over your mouth. No, I was just thinking, you want us in the locker room. We're trying to go to the football game. <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay, good. Do you see you, what I'm saying? Because I do. I got those questions, too. But mm -hmm. first, we need to know that <laughs> what we believe before we can. Not really in the locker room. That's kind of after the game, isn't it? We're actually in the training room. Yeah, yeah training. Room. We're in Pee Wee League right now. I'm going to be in training room in high school. That's my last. 
No, so we're, we, we, need, we do need to, so thank you, because we do tend to be, and this is, this is back to let's sniff the cultural air. Let's, let's kind of identify this water that we swim in as Americans. As Americans, we're pragmatic. Hey, tell me what, tell me what button to push, what pill to take, because uh, I just want to get there now, and I have no patience <coughs> for learning anything, okay? <laughs> I'm trying to slow you down and say, hey, let's be patient and learn this. And uh, if I don't know number two, the, the certainty in God and all of that, then really when I'm dealing with somebody, it seems like I'm trying to convince them of my beliefs. <laughs> and therefore I'm not letting God convince them. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay. Um, I, I'm arguing for my own benefit. I want to prove that I'm right. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, yeah, I hope that's not the case. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If I don't know this first, oh, I got you. Then, I, then I run out there to the field to play the football game yeah. to win, not okay. to glorify God. Okay, good, good, yeah. So. So yes, exactly. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to think that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we don't want to think that way. And, and I understand the, the sense of, well, I want to take this out and use it now. Um, let's, let's be patient and learn uh, the foundational principles because it's not about you having a script. Um, this is what I used to believe because I watched all the famous apologists teach scripts. Okay, first you say this. Now if they, there are several answers to this this, uh, this objection to your assertion. So you're gonna make this assertion and they can have three different answers, three different directions this can go. I'm like, okay, I gotta memorize that. So one, two, three, one, okay, got it. And so then, they, then I got those things down and I go out and try it and I come up with a fourth. <laughs> or, or I go down that one track and then I, I realize, oh no, it forks out in several other different directions. Now what do I do? I go back and read more books. And I start reading more books and memorize a script. And it does, you feel this tension, you feel this combativeness, this, argu you know, this argumentative kind of a spirit. It's, whole, it's totally crippling. And what I want to convey in this course as we're going through this is it's not about getting down a script. It's about getting down a way of thinking that is very, very powerful. It'll deepen your convictions on firm ground that, you know, you may not get it completely now, but as you continue to grow, God is going to take this and produce good fruit from it. So he's going to help you grow strong. Um, so it's not about, it's a way of, it's a philosophy of life. It's not about a, a program. It's not about a four step, you know, 12 step program. <laughs> we love steps, don't we as Americans? <laughs> Give me the steps. I'll try to apply the steps. But this is about a way of thinking and I'm trying to approach it from different angles so that you see that. Yeah. You say script, but I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that shouldn't it, all that we do be from the Bible, from the, the words of the Bible? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I can use you. That as, as well, <clears throat> there, there is. So, like, if I if I try to describe my Christian faith to a Hindu, okay, they have a million gods. Yeah. Um, I want to explain to them the concept of the Trinity. <laughs> if I limit myself just to biblical language and don't use a word like Trinity, tri unity, three persons, one one essence. Okay. If I don't use non-biblical language to explain biblical concepts, it takes a lot longer. So I shortcut that <clears throat> by using theological language and systematizing it. So yes, biblical concepts, biblical terms, 
But it's not like using biblical words is all of a sudden like a magic potion that will then, you know, they're all, oh, well, that was a really powerful word. Um, it's, it's the concepts, it's the meaning of the scripture that's the scripture. So it's okay when we're using, you know, I can give you a script of Bible passages, that's what the Romans wrote is. You go to this Romans passage, and then this Romans passage, and then this Romans one, and then boom, voila, a Christian. Um, I'm saying we need not, not think in that way. We need to think in a different way about this whole task of apologetics and evangelism. Okay. Even though, you know, I, I think the way the master stuff we went through, you know, it does give us a, um, you know, a pretty good set of a pattern. And we're going to have a pattern here as well. Um, but it's, I just, just want to get us out of, I must have the script, I must know the steps kind of thinking. Because I want to make you so light on your feet that you can, you can box against the 300-pound giant, and you can box against the, you know, the martial arts expert who's, you know, a short cat. Can I give you an example of what happened to me the other day? <clears throat> um, the Seventh Day Adventist, <clears throat> I asked him about uh, diet restrictions, and he kind of laid out what what. He's talking about a Seventh Day Adventist I'm with sorry. diet restrictions. Sorry. <laughs> yes, and uh, he kind of laid out everything and told me that you know God said the. Or, uh, I forget exactly, but he just said that, you know, meat is unclean, we can't eat pig, and in Leviticus. And I yeah. said, oh, that's from Leviticus, you know. And um, I uh, called Lee, <laughs> and he pointed me out to some stuff, and I just uh, emailed him. Um, cool. Which ones was it? It was about um, God declared f um, food clean. And Peter. Peter, yeah. So, um, is that is that bad doing that, or I mean? No, there's nothing bad with that at okay. all. No. All right. So, okay, never mind. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that. I guess. Well, um, let me let me help take it a little bit further. Okay. That that's a great um, that's a great opportunity for you to interact with a Seventh Day Adventist right. on that issue. Uh, where I would go next is to say, hey, you said you were a second Seventh-day Adventist. What does your church teach actually about the about the gospel? I know you have the thing with the meat and everything, and not sure. I'm still processing that, um, but, but I think Acts 10. But what do you think about, you know, like the way that we are justified before a holy God? How does that happen? Now you're into a different level of conversation. Okay, good. So, and with the Seventh-day Adventist, again, it's going to come down to an internal critique of their worldview to see, does their metaphysics line up with biblical metaphysics or not? Does the God that they pro-offer, teach, proclaim, line up with the Christian God or not? And that's where you find Mormonism breaking down and a number of forms of seven-day Adventism also breaking down. Okay? All right. So we are out of time. And I'll have to reevaluate how I go about this next time. I'll talk to some wise people. <coughs> go at it again. Father, thank you for the time we've had tonight. And I pray that you would use uh, what we've talked about to help people to think differently. Um, I pray that you would um, teach us all about uh, examining and understanding our own worldview, um, our view of reality, our view of knowledge and how we get it, our, our view of behavior, how we live. All of this, that we would expose these things and 
Um, and just be ref- self-reflective and self-aware as Christians. Uh, pray that you'd help us with that first and then help us as we go about having conversations with unbelievers too, to, to listen to those, um, those clues that they drop in their language and their speech. Pray that you'd help us to become more discerning and more aware and, and make us useful to, uh, to your glory for the, the purpose of sharing the gospel and defending it. We love you. We thank you for what we've covered tonight, and we pray that you would bless every single one. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.